Welcome to the Hallowed Halls. I'm Danielle, the Armchair Scholar, and this is my guide to the strange and unusual things that capture the imagination, that make your skin crawl, and that haunt you long after you've walked out of the movie or put down the book. Let's take a journey through film, television, books, and the works of actual scholars to get a better look at the tropes, legends, lore, and mythologies that make up these weird worlds and their inhabitants. Last month, we spent a bit of time enjoying the colorful world of bad clowns, but with the weather turning colder and the seasons now shifting towards that spookier time of year, I figured that it might be time to look at something befitting the mood of October. With Halloween looming, there's no shortage of topics to cover for this podcast. And I'll admit that it was a bit of a time to come up with something I felt would do justice to this time of year. For many, this is a season that starts well before October even begins, and I wanted to pick a subject that felt just as big and grand as Halloween has become here in North America. To do this, I decided to go back to the basic elements that people associate with this time of year. There's candy and costumes and pumpkin everything, but if you ask me, what truly makes it feel like Halloween is the scare factor. Horror movies rule this time of year, and in honor of that, I decided to go right back to one of the first instances of when they really came into their own on the big screen, and celebrate the Universal Monsters. Before we get too ahead of ourselves here, I have to note that there's too much to say about every single monster in this grouping to cover in a single month. All of these monsters have their own histories, their own lore associated with them, and different changes that have shaped them over the years, particularly in the journey from page to screen, or, in multiple cases, to the screen over many, many decades. In light of this, I'm going to focus my attention on only one monster this month, and will return to honor the rest in their own episodes soon enough. If you want more details on that, stay tuned to the conclusion at the end of the month. And with that out of the way, let's get to our lucky monster. Dracula. It's a name that can draw a thousand images. Even before Universal made their version, this was a character who had quite a fascinating road to the screen. Since the first time we saw the now iconic Hungarian newcomer don his cape, Dracula has grown beyond any one portrayal, being adapted more times than any other fictional character. That alone makes him too big to try to cover in even two episodes, as there's so much to talk about in regards to the making of the book, its cultural impact, the road to the Universal film adaptation, and the legacy that it helped create. Just as Jonathan Harker made his way from merry old familiar England to the shadowy realms of the unknown in Transylvania, so too will we make our way through the fascinating, odd, and surprising history and lore behind arguably the most famous vampire in literature. Join me for an extended special look as I endeavor to be your guide to the world of Dracula. I was not kidding at all when I said that this is a grandiose topic to celebrate Halloween, and the sheer size of it is nothing if not daunting. That said, we're going to try to break it down for ourselves, and hit the more important highlights wherever possible. Of course, we will be talking about the book and various adaptations, but given the amount of them that exist, there's a guarantee that we won't be able to get to them all. 
In the show notes, I will have all the resources listed, of course, but I'll start off by saying that if you want a good idea of the scope of how many different adaptations there are in existence, you'll want to check out the Vampire Book, The Encyclopedia of the Undead, by J. Gordon Melton. While there are a lot of adaptations in there, and Melton has done his best to update the book on several occasions to include more vampire-themed media, it still doesn't encompass the entire catalogue of vampire media, and certainly not every instance where Dracula has been adapted. With all of this in mind, however, I am going to try to hit a lot of the notable adaptations, but I also want to highlight ones that aren't talked about as much, that I think should be given their time in the moonlight. Some might be obvious, but some may surprise you. Before we can do that, however, let's go back to the beginning, even before Stoker's infamous count had hit the page, and look at some of the history of how he came to be. While the count has had many faces over time, if someone presented you with a mask depicting a man's face with a furrowed brow, black hair with a widow's peak at the crown, and fangs painted onto the red mouth, despite the fact that this image would be inaccurate, you would know exactly who this was supposed to be. While Stoker's novel made a half-step in the direction of turning our monster into a gentleman killer, it was another story that took the Count from being a dangerous foreigner, trying to fit into English society, to his full potential as being the elegant, mysterious, and even sexy predator. While we're getting to that transition soon enough, it should be noted that this isn't the first time Death got dressed up in evening clothes, nor was Stoker the first to invent the idea of a vampire going through the motions, but failing to stick the landing. In fact, this rather lovely image that we have of Dracula, and the vampire in general, bears little resemblance to any of the vampires that came before. We're going to talk about those other vampires in the next episode, covering the road to Stoker's landmark publication, and a lot more about Dracula's journey to Universal and beyond after. But in the interest of keeping this at a listenable length, we're going to spend this episode focusing on where the figure of the vampire came from, and how it transformed, rather by accident, a warlord into the most recognizable name in fiction. Now, it should be noted that like anything in history, there is some healthy debate about where the vampire as we know it starts. Vampirologist Odelia Barkin Camille wrote for the National Library of Israel that the Jewish source of vampirism is mentioned in connection with Lilith, the first wife of Adam. If you're not up on your biblical creation stories, the tale of Lilith was that she was initially created with Adam out of the same clay that he was born from, but unlike the chaste partner that he would have in Eve, his first wife had some rather specific ideas about what their marriage should entail. Lilith made it known that as Adam's sexual partner, she wanted to be on top, or to be able to switch from bottom as she saw fit. This was something Adam took exception to, as he saw her as lesser than him. Rather than stay in a situation where she could not be recognized as an equal, according to Bark and Camille, she pronounced the ineffable name of God and abandoned him in paradise. From here, she is said to have made her home with demons and, depending on the teller of the story, either to have married a powerful demon or to have simply gone on to take many lovers, many of whom she produced children with. And apparently, in Jewish lore, her sexual appetite and desire for children has yet to diminish. According to Rabbi Jill Hammer in her essay Lilith, Lady Flying in Darkness, 
The demon was said to fertilize herself with male sperm to give birth to other demons, and that, according to the Babylonian Talmud, it is forbidden for a man to sleep alone in a house, lest Lilith get a hold of him. While the individual details of her demonic nature may vary, one of the things that shows up in most, if not all, of her associated tales is her connection to sex and motherhood. Hammer wrote that she's not only a spirit of darkness, but also a figure of uncontrolled sexuality, something that would have been seen as extremely threatening to male power structures, regardless of the time and history. We know this because, ultimately, her denial of the subservient role to Adam was punished by denying her a legacy. Barkin Camille tells of three angels who came to reason with Lilith, and when she refused to return to Adam, they condemned her children to death. J. Gordon Melton's account of her in the Vampire Book described her appearance in the Gilgamesh epic as a vampire harlot who was unable to bear children and whose breasts were dry. Her revenge for the loss of, or the inability to bear her own children, is said to be what drives her to attack and feed off of the life of Eve's. Lilith's connection to children and death is something we're going to see reflected in Dracula later, but these stories give us some of the first instances of where we see the emergence of a nocturnal predator, specifically one that feeds off of legacy, blood, and other life fluids. While not everyone would agree that vampires started here, I think that it's an important part of their history and development, especially when talking about Dracula. It's true that Stoker probably didn't come across this tale when he was developing his novel, but Lilith's influence on the vampire is still something worthy of keeping in mind. It's also important considering that even if this is not where some people believe that the figure got its start, this demon is still an active contributor to vampire lore and stories. Lilith as the origin of all vampires, or blood-sucking demons, is something that has made its way into pop culture on several occasions, including Neil Gaiman's Sandman, Supernatural, True Blood, and the chilling adventures of Sabrina the Teenage Witch. As a vampire mother, there's clearly room and material to be explored there. And even if Hollywood wasn't that interested, according to both Barkin Camille and Hammer, to this day, there are still women who carry tokens depicting the three angels of the myth as a protection for their newborns. This would mean that even if it wasn't something that was necessarily floating around in literary circles yet, it is possible that this old story made its way into the background noise of everyday life, much in the same way that a lot of fairy tales and legends do. As a tale, there's power there, and there are definitely elements of these stories that inform our vampires to come. That said, this is still just a myth, and particularly one that's been told many times over generations. Variation in these stories and figures is inevitable in a way that isn't as true as when we can witness or touch elements of the tale. And this is where some argue that we can pin the true origin of the vampire. Professor Nick Groom from Exeter University argues that vampires came into being when Enlightenment rationality encountered East European folklore, an encounter that attempted to make sense of them through empirical reasoning, and that, by treating them as credible, gave them reality. In his book, The Vampire, A New History. Professor Groom isn't necessarily wrong in this matter either. 
While I do think that Lilith and her associated mythology plays an important role in the shaping of the figure that we know as the vampire, and especially in the vampire Dracula, I don't believe that we would have gotten to the Count that we know him as today, with just her influence alone. When Groom references Enlightenment rationality, he is specifically talking about how the vampire became a solid, physical phenomenon. Now granted, to us at this time in history, these are all still just stories. But unlike tales of blood-sucking demons from the Garden of Eden, a time and place we have no reference for, these stories are set in a world that we live in. Furthermore, we will never have any proof that Lilith stole the nocturnal emissions of a man sleeping alone in his apartment, but we do have physical evidence that people dug up and performed preventative rituals on real corpses. Groom wrote that the nascent science of vampirology investigated these entities not primarily from the testimonial of witnesses, as experiences of ghosts and apparitions were examined, but as physical beings that crucially held a literal body of evidence consisting of the corpses of perpetrators and victims. What those bodies did, and told those studying them, plays an important role in how the lore developed because of what was recorded. It should be noted that the disruption of corpses post-burial was a practice that did happen well before Enlightenment, and was applied to any kind of different situation where the cadaver was suspected of something nefarious. Because these are based in folk practices, there is almost no chance of being able to trace the record of when these rituals began or how they originated. For context, we can look to an article published by the Smithsonian Magazine about a corpse that had been staked in Bulgaria in the 13th century. Author Rachel Neuer reported that an iron rod had been hammered through the chest to keep the corpse from rising from the dead and disturbing the living. And, as extra insurance, his left leg had been removed and placed beside the corpse. It is tempting to lump this corpse into the greater narrative of him being a suspected vampire, but it should also be noted that all we have to go on are the remains. While this is certainly a good testimony, as this is a method for dispatching vampires, as we'll soon see, we always have to be cautious in applying the label from our point of view in history without the certainty of evidence. Even newer only states that it was allegedly a vampire, but without context and written record of this, we are left with a puzzle piece that might have applied to one or many pictures. There have been serious attempts to trace these rituals back to their absolute source, and to find where restless corpses that could be called vampires started. Among the most notable effort was from English author Montague Summers, whose work The Vampire, His Kith and Kin, published in 1928, had the goal of tracing vampirism right down to the roots. While there are some that have praised his efforts, and according to those who have read the book, it does cover quite an extensive amount of ground, it should be noted that Summers was a noted Catholic whose work was often presented through the lens of his religious beliefs. So again, Though he offers us a greater picture of the vampire throughout history in Europe and beyond through his findings, we always have to be a little bit careful about what might have been left out or might have been reinterpreted to fit a Catholic narrative. All of this taken into account, however, this is where we get the best stories from, where imagination allows itself to fill in the gaps that are made through what lacked in evidence 
context or access to medical technology that we have now. The vampire isn't the only creature of the night that we've used history to inform us when creating our fictions, but it is one of the rarer ones that actually has as rich a history in reality as it does in those stories that we've made up. In some regards, we might even say that it's one of the only creatures of fear that has a perfect blend of the two. A great example of how this works can be found in Summers' book, The Vampire in Europe, wherein the author examines customs, festival, lore, and stories about certain creatures of the night, but does so through not only his Catholic faith, but also through fiction. Like Groom, Summers is careful to make sure that he defines his vampire specifically, lest he and the reader fall down the wormhole of what counts as being this particular monster. Summers states that the most characteristic of the vampire is its horrid thirst for blood. By blood, it sustains and nourishes its own vitality. It prolongs its existence of life in death and death in life. Over the course of centuries, the definition of what is a vampire has shifted and changed, as we'll see. But the need to drink blood and drain the vitality from the living, usually those closest to the monster, persists as its primary and necessary features. We're going to go with that as a kind of basis for our monster as we move along to historical cases where reality and lore collided to help create the fictions that we know now. If you ask the average non-vampire nerd where they think that these creatures of the night came from, it would be surprising if they said anything other than their pop-cultural homeland of Transylvania. As we've already seen, the difficulties of tracing historical vampires is somewhat hampered by the fact that we have no one to ask and the records that we do have are just a bit at the mercy of those who were writing them down. That said, as far as answers go, while Transylvania isn't a terrible answer, it's just a bit specific and really only comes from one source. We're going to get to Brahm and the Wallachian prince soon enough, but for our own context, I think it's important to know about some of the other notable vampires of the area to really set the scene and give us an idea of some of the things that Stoker's research may have uncovered. Now before we get started here, I am going to take a little tiny bit of time to address what I mean when I say historical vampires. It should be noted that there are some people who identify as real vampires, who have their own subculture and their own groupings. I have read some studies on this group and seen some interviews with people who claim to be a part of it. I will say that though some outlets have attempted to be unbiased, an awful lot of the material that I've read that doesn't come from the groups themselves is often anywhere from a bit to overtly condescending towards people who identify as real vampires. As such, to avoid being unnecessarily unkind, or worse, inaccurate, towards a group that I am not well versed in their culture, I am going to pass on any kind of analysis on them. From what little I do know, a great deal of them are living very normal lives and are not a threat to anyone really. There are cases of criminals who either claim to be vampires or have held certain beliefs about blood drinking, but as I've mentioned before, I am not that entrenched in true crime and when real people are involved, for the sake of respecting their victims and the families who still have to deal with the aftermath, any discussion about them is not happening here. Instead, we're going to go way, way back to the past and looking at what it was that people saw and, more importantly, what they thought they saw when they encountered real dead bodies. 
It's easy for us now to look down upon or even dismiss the treatments of death and the lore around it from back in the day, but it's important that we also acknowledge how much more we have at our disposal than someone did in 13th century Bulgaria, or 17th century Poland, or even 19th century New England. We're spoiled in some ways that pop culture has adopted the language and aesthetic interpretation of procedural forensic science, because it tints our fictions with a kind of legitimacy that strips away the superstition that comes from fear of death. Our understanding of something like a wasting disease is less likely to be attributed to bad air or roaming corpses than it is to bacterial infection or even hereditary illness. That said, here in North America, we can't be too quick to throw stones at those who held beliefs about vampires back in the old times. What we know now about disease and transmission theory is invaluable for understanding why people die. But the last time I checked, most of the people I know have never stood at the foot of a freshly dug grave and looked at a cadaver that has been in the ground for a while. I think it's fair to say that most people who aren't directly dealing with dead bodies on a regular basis and have no interest in researching them wouldn't necessarily have any idea what to expect when the coffin was opened for them. In fact, a good number of people may very well default to things they've been told and truths that have been passed down for generations. As we dive into some historical vampires here shortly, some of the things you might be hearing a lot about are the miraculous changes to the body of a suspected vampire. Among the major signifiers of a corpse having risen from the dead are the presence of blood around the mouth, the body having grown longer hair and fingernails, or even new skin, the deceased having taken on a healthier blush, and the corpse looking physically more full than they might have upon their death. The ruddiness of the skin and blood around the mouth and in the coffin can be attributed to the way the body will bloat in the time after death, as gases escape and the bacteria within the body begins to break down the internal organs. This could look horribly damning if someone were to dig up the victim of a wasting disease who had been reduced to a near-skeletal figure in their last days, only to see them looking much fuller and with much redder skin than they've had in months. It's also noteworthy that a body that has been buried, particularly if it had been buried alone as opposed to a mass grave, would decay differently than if it were above ground. Again, we have the perspective of history on this, but many of the people dealing with these vampire outbreaks didn't. Depending on the climate they were buried in, the condition of the soil, the time of year, and all kinds of elements that may have quickened or slowed the rate at which the body decayed, we can see why this would seem very suspicious to those who were digging up bodies looking for vampires. In modern times, we understand decomposition better than in the past. But to this day, we still hear tales that the hair and nails of a corpse will grow post-mortem. Mortician and death activist Caitlin Doty explained in one of her Ask a Mortician videos that this myth was something that had been repeated in the medical community for many years, including being written into the 1877 medical records of a man who had died four years prior, as well as a textbook from 1900. She then goes on to explain how, though it is impossible for hair and nails to grow after death, it might appear as though they've been growing because the body will dehydrate as it decays, making the tissues of the hands and face shrink back and exposing more of the nails, and specifically for men, making them look like they've been growing stubble. The hair on your head is also likely to look like it gained an inch or two because of dehydration, but it has the added element of a chemical change after death, 
According to Vashnavi Patil for Science ABC, pheomelanin tends to hang around within the hair even after being exposed to extreme conditions. Therefore, under wet, oxidizing climates, the eumelanin in the hair, which gives it the darker color, is lost over extended periods of time, leaving behind the red pigment. Patil also explains that since the keratin in the hair and nails of a corpse are insoluble, unlike the rest of the body, it will remain for quite a long time after death. With this in mind, we can sympathize a bit with our scientists and vampire hunters of yesterday. It should be noted that they aren't necessarily trying to apply a catch-all solution to their mysterious corpses, but as Paul Barber, research associate at UCLA's Fowler Museum of Cultural History explains, sometimes the alternative solutions were based in some very limiting factors. In the preface to his 2010 edition of Vampires, Burial, and Death, Barber wrote that even when people proposed non-supernatural explanations for the phenomenon of the vampire, these were often fanciful. The vis vigaton, or invigorating force, seemed a plausible explanation for the continued growth of hair and fingernails after death. He continues by stating that the difficulties become even more severe when you find that people didn't just report what they saw, they reported on what they deduced from what they saw, without making the distinction. These are important points to keep in mind when we look at the cases we're going to be visiting of these historical vampires. We have to remember that even though they didn't have access to the tools and the discoveries that we have through modern forensic science, they still had issues with people dying, and the ultimate goal was the same as ours, to find a way to help the living from joining the dead. From here, we're going to take a tour of some pretty famous suspected vampires, starting in Serbia for the one, coming to America for the next, and landing back in Eastern Europe for the oldest case of a vampire that never was. Without further ado, let me introduce you to Arnold Pohl. If you search for Pohl's name online, you'll find that there's an entire Wikipedia page dedicated to the man, despite the fact that, in life, he'd been a Serbian hadjuk, or freelance soldier, whose service was not generally of note according to everything that I've been able to find on him. His online presence persists, however, not because of his life, but his death. Pohl, it seemed, had been plagued by a creature of the night prior to his death, and had taken it upon himself to try to eat the earth of the vampire's grave, and had smeared himself with the vampire's blood in order to be free of the vexation he had suffered, according to the report translated by Paul Barber. What's curious about Paul and his entry into this narrative is that while most of our historical vampires have also been purported to be victims of some malevolent blood-sucking fiend, this is one of the only suspected vampires whose death is really just an accident. After falling from a wagon, Paul died from a broken neck, and if not for what followed, his name might very well have been lost to history. Instead, though the man had been dead and buried for nearly a month, the people of his village insisted that they kept seeing him. When those same villagers began to die, the authorities decided to dig up his corpse, as it had widely been accepted that he had become a vampire. According to the translated report, the site that greeted those who exhumed Pohl found that fresh blood had flowed from his eyes, nose, mouth, and ears, and that the shirt, the covering, and the coffin were completely bloody, that the old nails on his hands and feet along with the skin had fallen off, and that new ones had grown. 
By now, we understand that this is fairly standard for decomposition, but in 1725, this was the mark of a vampire. Barber's translation then goes on to describe the method by which the vampire was eradicated. The report was they drove a stake through his heart, according to their custom, whereby he gave an audible groan and bled copiously before burning the body to ashes and throwing the remains in the grave. The same action would be repeated for the people who were said to be Pole's victims. As you'll note, their custom is particularly similar to that of the Bulgarian body that was mentioned earlier, and both these cases were treated rather remarkably like our infamous Count in the final act of whatever narrative he's starring in this time. That said, you'll also notice that while we can count on the common denominator of the stake through the body as a means of stopping the vampire's nightly visits, these two historical stories have the added bonus of the insurance measures the people took to keep themselves safe, that being the removal of the leg and the cremation of the body, respectively. Even in Stoker's book, the vampires are staked to keep them in the coffin, but the job isn't complete until they decapitate the corpse and stuff the mouth with garlic. This wasn't simply Stoker having a morbid imagination, either. While folkloric remedies did vary a great deal depending on where the burial had been performed, there was a precedent for these extra steps for dealing with a suspected vampire to keep them from attacking anyone else. According to Benjamin Radford's article about the proper burial of a vampire for live science, other remedies included burying or reburying bodies face down and decapitation, which often included stuffing the severed head's mouth with garlic or bricks. While the garlic used a lot in folklore remedies as a means of warding off evil makes sense if we look at it from the point of view of containing the vampire, one might be forgiven for wondering what a brick might accomplish in the procedure. This answer may lie in regional differences and, depending on materials available, possibly practicality. While garlic would help in trapping the evil that created the vampire, a brick is more of a pragmatic approach to stopping the creature of the night from biting anyone or anything. As it turns out, there was more to fear from the undead than simply having them rise from their coffins and infecting entire villages and towns with a mysterious illness that would kill whole families. According to Nicholas Groom, even from their coffins, they could find a very loud and grotesque means of disturbing the peace. A study conducted by Philip Rohr in 1679 was published on the behaviors of restless corpses within their coffins. Groom details one such phenomenon that Rohr described as mandication, or grave-eating. According to Rohr's study, the graves were opened to reveal that the undead had been consuming their own shrouds and winding cloths, and in some cases had even devoured their own limbs and bowels. This would have been disturbing alone. But according to the account that Rohr gave, it seemed to get worse, as the dead were known to have grunted, gibbered, and squeaked under the ground. The devil makes curious noises in mandication. As unappealing as that sounds, there was more to this than the restless dead making gross sounds that could be heard from the grave. Paul Barber explains that there was a belief that if any cloth touches the mouth of a corpse, the corpse is apt to begin to chew on it, thereby bringing about the death of friends and relatives of the deceased through an agency that's never really explained. While that last bit is worth noting, this is really no different than some of the other folkloric causes that are said to lead to vampirism, 
most of which seem like random circumstances to the modern eye. It is more important to pay attention to this fact, not for how we can explain away mandication as a normal part of the decomposition process now, but for how it informs us about the sway that the vampire was believed to have held over a community. If we take what we've learned about folkloric vampires of history and refocus our lens on Bram Stoker's novel, we see that while the titular vampire bears no resemblance to these figures in appearance, there is a common element that they share. These historical accounts not only had the bodies of evidence that Groom mentioned, but also retain a presence in everyday life, even after they had been long dead. Suspected vampires might be dug up months or even years after they had been committed to the earth, and from the reports that we've seen, and many others, it seemed like the dead were never really that far away. Likewise, Dracula himself is given very little dialogue in the book proper, and it's all through the memories recorded in Jonathan Harker's journal. Still, his presence lingers and haunts those in the book, though the audience barely sees him after he abandons Harker in the castle. This is most evident through his victims, first Lucy, and then Mina. Their symptoms, and Mina's later psychic link to him, telegraphs his presence in the whole narrative without him having to be there. When we see it this way, Dracula's role in the novel reads a little like bad air hovering about the heroes as they uncover who and what he is. That bad air is something that plays a rather large role in the next historical vampire that we're going to be taking a look at. Miasma theory was the belief that disease was caused by toxic air or mist, often associated with smells of decomposition and other unpleasant odors. This theory was widely touted in the Middle Ages and led to the bad air theory, according to Dr. William C. Scheele Jr. There's a lot behind the bad air beliefs of the day and why it persisted, not helped by the fact that larger cities, especially London, in the Victorian period, were rife with all manner of conditions and hidden poisons that were simply a part of everyday life. Everything from the food they ate, the paper on their walls, or, in the case of industrialized London, the toxins in the infamous fog around them could lead to people mysteriously wasting away or finding that they were consistently getting ill. There were a number of proposed methods for combating the problems of bad air caused by stench and corpses, but for those with the money, one such solution was that people would be sent away by their doctors to seaside destinations, and sometimes that cure would work. The times it didn't, however, were usually because no amount of so-called good air was going to cure wasting diseases caused by a cholera epidemic, which Stoker's own mother had survived as a girl. Yet it was not cholera or yellow fever that we associate with the figure of the vampire. There is another deadly, horrifying disease that caused a great deal of suffering and death, particularly in New England at the end of the 19th century, and the people at the time knew it as consumption. Today, we know it as tuberculosis. Possibly the most infamous name in American vampire lore is that of Mercy Brown, but it should be noted before we move on that she was not a vampire. This doesn't seem like something that one should have to make a distinction on, but the young girl at the center of this legend does have descendants of her family living in the area where she was buried. This is something that sets her apart from most of the other historical cases that we might find. 
While there is no information on the staked remains found in Bulgaria, and we know very little about Arnold Pohl or where his ashes lie, this is not the case for Brown and her family. Those whose names or finer details have been lost to centuries are able to translate into figures of myth and lore, because there are so many blanks that history can no longer fill in for us. Mercy Brown, on the other hand, is someone who is no longer tangible as a person, but her legacy isn't buried in speculation or reports given by long-lost clerks or witnessing clergy. She also has the distinction of being buried in American soil, which gives those who hear the legend a physical focal point to hang the story off of and give it grounding in reality. This has helped the story to endure, but it has also had some frustrating consequences for the family. In years past, thanks to local news coverage equating Mercy Brown with the word vampire, tourists and amateur paranormal hunters have taken to damaging, and once even outright stealing the headstone from her grave. I have mentioned it a couple of times in the show notes, but I am going to be very frank in that while I encourage people to be curious about history and lore, I want to stress that anyone going to visit this gravesite to please be mindful of the family, those who maintain the grounds, and the other people who gather to remember their loved ones there. As I've said in the notes, we all want to be able to visit these historic sites, and even small acts of vandalism can end with them being closed off to the public permanently. There is a lot of history and beauty to be found in old cemeteries like this, and many other ways to mark a meaningful visit to them. So with that in mind, let's please keep our visits to sites like this respectful. And with that, let's get to know who Mercy Brown was. Mercy Brown was a 19-year-old young woman who died in Exeter, Rhode Island in 1892. But the real start of what happened to her family can be traced back to 1883. Folklorist and researcher Michael E. Bell details in his book, Food for the Dead, how the Browns were a farming family, and the patriarch, George, was well regarded in his community. The family suffered their first loss of mother Mary Eliza in December of that year, and her death was followed seven months later by her eldest daughter, also named Mary. By this point, George's son, Edwin, had also fallen ill with the same symptoms as mother and sister, and went away to Colorado in hopes that it would stop the progress of the disease. The change of location, presumably for better restorative air, did little, and he was soon getting worse. But in the meantime, young Mercy had developed what was known as a galloping variety of consumption, so named because of how quickly it progressed. In modern times, it is hard to understand the kind of dread and terrible grief that a family like this would suffer in times of major outbreaks of disease. In our recent times, we have access to so much more in terms of medical treatments, understanding of diseases to get a prognosis, and even just the care involved in helping those who are ill. As described by Bell, and even in his interviews with Mercy Brown's descendant, Everett Peck, in the 1890s communities, particularly rural ones, often had to rely on folk remedies because there was little to no other options available to them. In a case where a family had already been suffering from such heavy losses and was on the verge of losing yet another member and the only son, George was looking at impossible choices no matter what he did. To quote Peck in his 1981 interview with Bell, he said, Years ago, you didn't have medicines. You didn't have nothing. You had to figure it out on your own. 
They were self-independent people, everyone that lived here. Bell further proves what Everett Peck had been talking about when he transcribed a record of the event that led to Mercy's body being exhumed. The written statement even goes on to identify that Mercy and her brother Edwin were both victims of consumption, and that Mr. Brown, the father, though not believing in the superstition himself, desired to come up to satisfy the neighbors and make an autopsy of the bodies. The superstition in question in the report was the call by those in the community to find a solution to Edwin's dire state by digging up the bodies of his mother and two sisters to check to see if there was blood still in the heart. Mercy had died in January, and the exhumations had been performed in March. This had allowed her body to sit in a cold environment for three months, leading the witnesses to claim that unlike her mother and sister, she had not decayed, and marking her as the culprit. From there, the ritual differs from the ones we've spoken about prior, as those in attendance removed her heart and liver from her body and burned them on a nearby stone close to her grave. In a final act of trying to stop the disease from killing Edwin, he was said to have been made to drink a concoction of the ashes of the heart and liver. As imagined, Edwin died shortly after, but the rest of the family survived. The value of learning about these folkloric vampires is seeing where the elements of Dracula's story came from and how they have traveled over the centuries. It also goes to prove that though Stoker had a great imagination for the macabre, there was plenty of historical precedent for him to draw from. In this episode, we've really only hit the highlights of a couple of major cases of corpses treated as vampires, but they are hardly the only ones. As Paul Barber recalled in his 2010 preface to Vampire's Burial and Death, vampires of this nature were nothing if not plentiful, because as we've seen in Mercy Brown's case, a lot of times there were whole families and communities that were affected by diseases that no one had any effective cure for at the time. While it's hard to say if Stoker ever read about Arnold Pohl, or if news of Mercy Brown ever made its way to London, it's not as though these remedies for vampires wouldn't have been something that he might easily find given enough research. We're going to get into more of what Bram Stoker did to create his infamous count soon enough, but up to this point, we can see a small selection of which building blocks he used in crafting his story. We can see how he shaped elements of history and folklore to create his own work, and it gives us a bit of a trajectory of things to come. That said, even with all these elements in their basic form shown to us, they are just ingredients that had yet to be solidified into the figure that we know now. To crown off all of the history and the lore, this figure needed a name. And when Stoker was doing his research, he happened upon one that would be an absolute jackpot. As names go, there are a few that catch attention quite like Dracula. It rolls off the tongue, and regardless of which figure you are referring to, there's an incredible story attached to it. Modern audiences are fairly familiar with the fictional Dracula and his horrific antics. That said, whether it's Bela Lugosi, Christopher Lee, Frank Langella, Gary Oldman, or even more recently, Luke Evans, the terrors these versions of Dracula bring can also be pretty enticing. Even Lugosi's version puts the threat of death in evening clothes and understands his way around good manners. What the real Vlad Dracula accomplished in his tenure might well have been too much for Stoker's Victorian imagination, had he known the full extent of what this warlord did. According to scholar David J. Scal, Stoker likely first encountered the name Dracula from the 1820 book 
an account of the principalities of Wallachia and Moldavia, with various political observations related to them, by William Wilkinson. In his Stoker biography, Something in the Blood, Skull wrote that, in reality, Vlad's connection to Stoker's character was more fortuitous than inspirational, and the author's research was surprisingly thin. But over time, and especially thanks to Francis Ford Coppola's misleadingly titled film Bram Stoker's Dracula, Vlad's story is now universally misunderstood as Stoker's central source. We're going to touch on that film and what it did later, but for now, we're going to focus on what it hinted at and what Dracula never included, the real story of the man that history remembers as Vlad the Impaler. Now, before we go into this much further, I will give a warning to those who are sensitive to historical gore and violence. I will spare everyone the grittiest of details, because I don't think that this is important for our discussion, but I will be highlighting some of the many cruel and horrifying things that this ancient prince did, both to the Ottoman Turks that he fought against, and his own subjects under his terrifying and iron-fisted rule. Some of the things he did are exceptionally gruesome, and wherever actual descriptions of them occur in the sources, I will be certain to make sure that you know before clicking any links. To be clear, I will not be including any sources that feature anything that glorifies or sensationalizes the violence, though a lot of the accounts as they stand, depending on who wrote them, may or may not be subject to either embellishment or downplaying of Vlad Dracula's actions. That said, while there's no one around from the 1400s to ask their personal accounts of the matter, it is documented from a variety of sources that he did commit many of the atrocities that we will talk about. And with that, let's go back to 1436 to the land beyond the forest. According to the short biographics documentary on him, this was the year that Vlad Dracul had claimed the throne of the state of Wallachia, and the younger Vlad took on the name Dracula, or son of Dracul. It was a time of great political unrest, however, because Vlad Dracul only had a precarious claim to the title, being the illegitimate son of the previous ruler, Mercia. It was a conflict that would lead to that title changing hands quite a lot over the next hundred years or so. As we know from such conflicts as the War of the Roses, this would have already presented a particularly difficult time to grow up in, being a viable heir to the throne in a constant battle for power. But Wallachia also had the distinction of being in a very difficult spot, both geographically and historically. The small state, now just a region in Romania, was a principality that sat on the area directly beside where the Ottoman Empire had gained a stronghold on what used to be the Byzantine Empire. And that brings us to the name Dracul, and why that was super important in the years to come. If you've ever looked it up, you've probably already seen that Dracul is a word that means dragon, or, in some translations, it has been taken to mean devil. In this case, Vlad carried the title Dracul, as was bestowed on him by the Holy Roman Empire. It was a signifier that he was a part of the Order of the Dragon, among whose duties it was to stand in defense of Christianity against the Ottoman Turks. That was a bit of a tall order when they were sitting next door to a large empire of a different faith, with a very strong army. This was something that Vlad Dracul was very much aware of, evidently, 
because when the younger Vlad was about 11, he and his younger brother Radu would be given over to the Turkish Sultan as a means of bargaining to keep Wallachia essentially as safe as possible in those times. While in captivity, Radu grew to enjoy life with the Turks, and chose to remain there of his own accord when they were released in 1448. Vlad, on the other hand, was less okay with having been in a foreign country, and would hold a grudge for a while, as we'll see. When Vlad returned to his home country, the local political issues had gotten quite a bit more serious, as both his father and oldest brother had been executed, and he was left to try to claim the throne from the ruler that was currently holding power. Standing in his way was the fact that the nobles of the area, known as boyars, held considerable sway, and according to Dracula scholar Elizabeth Miller, were quite in favor of a puppet ruler that would allow them to do whatever they pleased. Though he was able to claim the throne in 1448 for a brief period of time, he was eventually forced out and would not regain power until 1456, wherein he would complete the bulk of his reign until he was forced out again, this time following a battle with the Ottoman Turks in 1462. His final attempt to hold on to the throne would come in about 1476, and will last until his death on the battlefield later that same year. If you're trying to do the math on this one, you'll note that this king was in power for only about seven years in total. What he lacked in longevity, he more than made up for in infamy. One thing we have to take into account when looking at this historic figure, is that there is more to Vlad Dracula than just what we know, and far more than I will be covering today. History has a bad habit of painting over the nuance of situations and creating very polarized views of a lot of events and people, even if their stories were a lot more complicated. I won't mince words when I say that some of the things that we're going to see about Vlad Dracula are horrific and would be seen as cruel and even unforgivable by many today. That said, he's also heralded as a folk hero to many in Romania, and given their perspectives you can see why. The first thing that we need to dispense with is that Dracula was, like his father before him, in a constant battle with not only the wealthy nobles that dictated who sat on the throne, but also the powerhouse empire next door who had their own ideas of who should be sitting ruler. Though he was raised by the Sultan during his formative years, and by all accounts the boys were treated fairly well, he never did let go of his pride in his homeland, and for many, he is a lone figure that dared to take on the Ottoman Empire, and to that end, Dracula actually did a lot more damage than one young ruler had any right to in less than a decade. His battle tactics worked more often than they didn't, and that unto itself is pretty impressive when you look at the size and magnitude of the army he was taking on. There are also stories told throughout Romania about how he looked after the people of his country. According to an account that Elizabeth Miller transcribed on her website, one of the things that Dracula put an end to during his reign was the tribute that saw at least a hundred young people from Wallachia and the surrounding area surrendered to serve in the Turkish army every year. Dracula refused, and when the Sultan sent for him, Miller tells of a clever ironsmith who assisted Vlad's escape from the pursuing Turks, and how, in return for his service, Dracula generously gave the man and his family 14 mountains, 9 sheepfolds, which you will have forever, in a signed deed. A descendant of the man claims the family still has two mountains from that agreement to this day. 
One of the other stories that is told about this ruler is how he worked to break the power of the merchants and the nobility in his small kingdom. Following his rise to power in 1456, he successfully managed to weaken the hold of the boyars, though he did so through a rather infamous Easter feast. From here, we are getting into the atrocities, and while many of the things he did was in the service of driving back the Turkish forces, still many others were enacted on his own people that he ruled over with an iron fist. Getting back to that Easter feast. This is a gruesome tale, though one that even outsiders may at least understand, though I doubt anyone would condone it. The story, as it has been told by historians, is that Vlad Dracula had gathered the names of all the people who had been involved in the banishment and the execution of his father and older brother, and invited them to the Easter festival of 1457. Accounts vary on what transpired, but the gist of the tale is that after the wealthy nobles had eaten their fill of the fancy meal he provided, he had his guards surround them and enacted his revenge. Those who were either too young or too old were put to death immediately, while the rest were forced to labor, helping to repair his castle for months on end. Lest anyone think the old or the young got off easy with a quick death, they were executed by his preferred method, and one that would become synonymous with his name, impalement. Said to be a torture method that he learned during his stay with the Turks, this form of execution is the careful insertion of a stake pole through the body, and the pole is then hoisted into the ground, allowing the victim's weight and gravity to do the rest. Depending on how the pole is inserted, and if done correctly, this torturous death can be drawn out for days. Vlad's name would carry the title of the Impaler in his life, and well after his death, citing how often he executed people in this manner. By now, even people who are unfamiliar with the historical figure of Dracula are likely to have seen the famous woodcut of him dining amid the forest of people impaled on stakes. Horrifically enough, this was from a very real incident. According to an article from the History Hour, in retaliation for Dracula's refusal to fall in line, the Sultan brought the Ottoman army across the Danube and into Wallachia to find a veritable forest of 20,000 Turkish men, women, and even children impaled and left to rot. It was said that this was the famed forest of bodies that he was supposed to have dined with, and there are even accounts that said that he had a bowl of blood from the victims to dip his bread in with his meal. This last part, for as far as historians can tell, is suspect, considering that it came from a Nuremberg pamphlet, which was distributed by the Saxons, another group that was said to have been widely tortured and killed by Dracula's armies. But it was not just the wealthy, nor his foreign enemies who were at risk of Dracula's severe punishments, nor was he simply limited to impaling people. Another account that Miller lists on her website is when Dracula, whose strict moral code demanded that there be no people under his rule that were not working, rounded up all the poor, the sick, and the crippled, and had them attend a great feast. If you are thinking that this sounds an awful lot like how a certain other feast went, you should be commended on having excellent pattern recognition, because as it turns out, Dracula had not invited these people into a great hall out of the goodness of his heart. He gave them what was said to be their last meal, boarded up the great hall, and burned it down with everyone inside. 
And these are only a few tales of the many that included the brutal deaths of men, women, and children who did not meet the ruler's standards and added to his legacy that would follow throughout time. As we've already tackled earlier, none of this was known to the Irish author who would stumble upon the warlord's name in the 1890s, and no one would be able to guess that this man would gain a kind of accidental immortality from a book written over 400 years after his death. And that story is exactly what is coming up on our next episode. We're going to be covering a little bit about Bram Stoker, who he was, and what inspired him to write the novel that would eventually overshadow everything else he did in his life. We'll also be covering that famous novel in all its splintered glory. If you're wanting more vampires, you've come to the right place, and I hope you'll join me for another special episode coming up next week. And with that, thank you for joining me and letting me be your guide to the macabre world of folkloric vampires and Dracula. The Armchair Scholar's Guide was researched and written by myself, Danielle Clausen. As always, if you're wanting to know more about the sources that I've quoted or referred to in this episode, you can always find the show notes with all the relevant links at my website, SinisterGardenLegacy.com, under the heading Litanies. And don't forget that the show notes also include many other goodies for you to check out, including links to videos, other podcasts, and even a virtual tour of Castle Bran. So if you're excited about vampires, head over to the site because there's a lot for you to enjoy. Anyone wanting to read the transcripts of the episodes can do so by joining my Patreon at the $2 tier. Bloopers, where you can get to hear me sing, are available for a bit more. As you might have noticed, this month we're doing things a bit differently, and instead of doing things on a bi-weekly schedule, we're going to be celebrating October by giving you an episode every Saturday until the big day. So you can expect a new episode in one week from now. And until then, remember to keep studying, and wherever possible, let curiosity be your guide.